One of the most sacred, important, and required steps someone takes when becoming a doctor is the Hippocratic Oath. And one of the biggest promises within that oath is, first, do no harm. But when have killers ever liked being told what not to do? And especially killers with a PhD. Going to the doctor can be nerve-wracking enough. The doctors on this list make it downright deadly. And I have the number one spot on this countdown, and let me say... They are without a doubt one of the most evil men in the history of the world. Hey all you weirdos, welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast research gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 diabolical doctors. Even though I go like every single year or like anytime anything's wrong with me and I trust my doctor, (laughs) I get so much anxiety going every single time. You do. I do. You do. I've always seen that. I like won't sleep the night before. My stomach will be a mess. Sometimes they have to like redo my blood pressure because I'm so nervous. (laughs) See, weirdly, a lot of people get that. That is very common. Yeah. And weirdly, I am never nervous or anxious at all about going to the doctor. I always go to my checkups and I always just look at it as like this cool thing I get to do that lets me know what my blood is doing. Yeah, see, I (laughs) want to look at it like that. But I think the reason I get so scared is because you always hear those like crazy stories like, oh, the doctor operated on the wrong leg. Yeah, that's true. Or like when I listened to Dr. Death, I was absolutely terrified (laughs) at the thought of ever getting any kind of surgery again, let alone pulling into my doctor's office. You know, I can definitely see that. I can see that one as a reason. But I think maybe it helps. I don't know. Like maybe it helps that I have a job that requires me to know a lot about the human body. Yeah. So maybe I feel like it gives me a little more peace of mind at the doctor's office. I kind of know a little bit about what he's saying. So maybe it's like not as foreign. You're used to being in that setting too. Yeah. It yeah, can be exactly. like a very cold like environment and that you're not used to. And I'm very used to it. That's just what I do every day. Exactly. Well, hopefully once I hear who you have at number one, I don't feel the sudden need to cancel any upcoming appointments that I might have. Um... Unfortunately, my number one will probably make everyone want to cancel everything forever. Oh, it's horrifying. Okay, good. Yeah. Because you guys know how this works. Elena has five terrifying doctors and so do I, but neither of us knows who the other has. Let's start the countdown. Ten. I'll start us off with number 10, former Nebraska doctor Anthony Garcia. Garcia was convicted of killing four people in revenge for being fired from a Nebraska residency program. The timeline from when he was fired to the murders proved this man stewed in his anger for a very long time. And during his sentencing hearing, he basically slept through it as he was being told he was going to death row. How is this number 10? (laughs) We're starting it off with a bang. 
In 2001, Garcia was fired from Crichton University's pathology department by Dr. William Hunter and Dr. Roger Brumbach. Hey, I know that department. Hey, you work there. (laughs) In 2008, seven years later, Garcia went to Dr. Hunter's home in his upscale neighborhood and stabbed to death his (gasps) 11-year-old son, Thomas Hunter, and 57-year-old Shirley Sherman. What? Like, this escalated so quickly. Now, unfortunately, even though the police had a bunch of evidence, they could not pinpoint a suspect and the case went cold. Stop. So then flash forward to 2013, Mother's Day. 12 years after being fired, Garcia shoots and stabs to death Dr. Roger Brumbach, one of the doctors who fired him. 12 years? 12 years later, and not only shoots, but also stabs him. And he also stabs to death his wife, Mary, both in their home in Omaha. Police then connect the dots of the two murders from 2008 and 2013, and they name Anthony Garcia as their suspect. Now, two months later, they arrest him during a traffic stop in Southern Illinois. And during the trial, prosecutors said Garcia planned to attack another Crichton Medical School faculty member the same day he killed Dr. Brumbach and his wife. But the woman's house alarm went off when he tried to break in and he fled. Like, imagine knowing that later on as this woman. Oh my gosh, I would, that alarm system, I'd be sending them flowers every single day for the rest of my life. I'd buy five more just to be safe. Now, according to the Associated Press, quote, prosecutors presented massive amounts of circumstantial evidence. In 2016, Garcia was found guilty on all counts of first degree murder. And in 2018, Garcia was basically sleeping in the courtroom when he was sentenced to death. There's so much. And the fact that he waited 12 years, like like stewed on it for 12 years. That's a long game, dude. And then still decided to go through with it. Like 12 years to decide whether that's a good idea. Right. And you get away with one murder and then you like wait that long and you think you're going to get away with another. Like what a a narcissist. And what did the kid do? He didn't fire you and the wives. And there was probably a reason that they fired you, dude. Why is that number 10? (laughs) I'm scared. Nine. At number nine is Morris Bulber. Now, the episode is about diabolical doctors, but that doesn't mean it's all medical physicians killing patients. Morris Bulber was a, quote, veteran witch doctor in the 1930s. Dr. Bulber became part of the Philadelphia Poison Ring with Italian immigrant cousins Herman and Paul Petrillo. The trio set up an insurance scam that involved our local witch doctor conjuring up some deadly potions. Wow, this sounds like a movie already. The Petrillo cousins found themselves having some money problems, but they also were finding out that they had new talents to show off. Herman Petrillo was a spaghetti salesman who had become skilled in counterfeiting. A spaghetti salesman? (laughs) I didn't know those existed. Skills, you know? His cousin, Paul Petrillo, was a tailor who is now skilled at insurance scams. You always have to have a plan B. How do you go from, like, sewing to insurance scams? Yeah, it's a fallback, you know? (laughs) Everybody's got to have one, like you said. Yeah, you know, if the sewing doesn't work, I can always do this. I can always scam people. The Petrillos decided it was time to branch out and fix their money woes, so they turned to Morris Bulber, nicknamed Louis the Rabbi, who considered himself a faith healer. Dr. Bulber also practiced a certain type of magic that attracted the cousins. The doctor would create and give potions to patients to better their lives. Was it literally just herbal tea? 
Sounds like it might have been. It's just chai tea. <laughs> it's <laughs> just it a chai tea latte from Starbucks. That's all. The trio's business plans would go as follows. They set up shop as marriage matchmakers. See, that's already so mean. <laughs> this is already like a weird like comedy movie. The Four Stooges yeah, of Witch Doctor exactly. Bill. <laughs> Nailed it. Thank you. Let's pitch that to major studios. <laughs> So they set up shop as marriage matchmakers. Men would come in and get set up with widowed women. This is terrible. I know. The cousins and Dr. Bulber would take out insurance policies on these men. Then after marrying them off to the widows, Dr. Bulber would poison them with his potions, which was really, ding, 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 arsenic. Not chai tea. Okay, hold on. So not only have these women lost their husbands already, then they have a second chance at love, and then he kills their husbands again, not only breaking their hearts for a second time, but also probably leading them to be the ones who people thought were doing this. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. All of that. That is so cruel. Yeah, this is pretty bad. Well, the deaths were, quote, accidental. No, they weren't. So Dr. Bulber capitalized on a provision in the insurance policies that allowed for double payment if the death was accidental. All those widows cashing out too, I guess. I wonder if they were privy to this Yeah, I was just going to say, you don't know. And we've heard of that like double payment thing in a few cases Mm -hmm. we've covered. It's, it'll get you. By 1939, the scam had unraveled and 24 people total were indicted, getting various life sentences. Dr. Bulber was arrested, but turned state's evidence on the cousins, who were convicted and executed. Oh, wow. Yeah, a different kind of doctor. I'm like, he was the one that made up the potion, though. They wouldn't have had the whole game without him. Yeah, you need that arsenic tea for it to work. Yeah, he should have gotten the same punishment. Sham. Eight. Number eight on our countdown of diabolical doctors is Dr. Maxim Petrov. Petrov was an emergency room doctor in St. Petersburg, Russia, who decided to start robbing mostly elderly patients during off-duty house calls while acting as if he was a doctor from their personal clinic. To rob them without getting caught, he started administering lethal injections to simply kill them off. But then... Some of his victims survived. Wow. Yeah, just that. (laughs) So Maxim Petrov was a 30-something St. Petersburg doctor who began to do these off-duty house calls to elderly and ailing patients. Police discovered that he chose his victims using a detailed list of elderly lung patients. Like, are you kidding me? And they didn't know better when a doctor showed up and said he was from their clinic to get inside. Whenever you are picking on the elderly, you're terrible. Yeah. Like, that's not classy. no use for you. Get out of here. It all began with Petrov going to the patients' homes and allegedly giving them anesthesia to knock them out and steal from them. Basically, they would wake back up and never really realize that he'd stolen anything. Already terrible. Horrific. But then some patients started regaining consciousness while he was still there and his dark plan of robbery turned into murder. But luckily, like I said, there were survivors. The Guardian spoke to one woman who said, quote, I remember a call at my flat at about 2 p.m. The young man presented himself as a doctor from the local clinic. The doctor took my blood pressure, which appeared to be high, and offered an injection. He spent a lot of time trying to find the vein, and I thought, how can a doctor have problems with such a thing? When I woke, there was a fire around me. I cried for help on the balcony. The fire service came, but the flat was badly burned. 
He tried to light her on fire. Like, not only did he inject her hoping to kill her, he also like was gonna set her on fire. What? Another survivor said she was injected by Petrov, fell asleep, and then came to only to discover the gas in her home had been turned on and all her windows were shut. Oh, okay. So he's lighting some on fire and gassing others. Like he's not... I, I just, my, my words are lost. What? Now, thankfully, that woman's husband came oh home and got her out, like saved her life. Petrov was arrested in late 2000 and the Russian media dubbed him Dr. Killer and Dr. Death. Wow. Petrov went on trial for killing 17 people and was found guilty of 11. He was sentenced to life. Good. Seven. At number seven this week is Dr. Linda Hazard. Dr. Hazard did not have an actual medical degree, but she was still licensed by the state of Washington as a fasting specialist. What is that? I'm saying Hazard believed that too much food was the cause of disease. The result was her starving about a dozen people to death. And while she did that, she took over their property and finances and stole their life savings. I've actually heard of this one. Have you? Mm -hmm. This is horrifying. Yeah, it's messed up. In her self-published 1908 book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease, Hazard wrote, Appetite is craving, hunger is desire. Craving is never satisfied, but desire is relieved when want is supplied. But that want is food, so like... I don't know. Who hurt <laughs> like, her? What? Who hurt her? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. What is that? The method she practiced was that the path to true health was to, quote, periodically let the digestive system rest through near total fasts of days or more. Yeah, because then your body will go into starvation mode and that is so good for you. Yeah, I don't know if that's resting it so much as like freaking it out Shutting and thinking that down. you're starving. <laughs> Being the early 1900s, this is sort of an early alternative medicine type of story that attracted a lot of patients. Hazard set up shop in the town of Olala, Washington. Patients would come to her to get set up on a fasting plan where they only consumed small servings of vegetable broth and had their systems flushed with daily enemas. That is so dangerous. This is not worth it. As we mentioned, this all turned deadly, especially with patients who died while fasting for almost two months. One patient died when they had 50 days of fasting. 50. I cannot even imagine. 50 days. That's insane. I go a few hours without eating and I'm like, well, ready to start saying goodbye to everybody because I feel terrible. Like it's how? But the most famous case in Dr. Hazard's practice was British sisters Claire and Dora Williamson. The well-to-do sisters always felt they had minor ailments and believed in alternative medicine. So when they saw an ad for Hazard's book in a newspaper, they looked into her Institute of Natural Therapeutics in Olala and decided to undergo what Claire called Hazard's, quote, most beautiful treatment. Nothing about that is beautiful. None. When Claire and Dora got to Washington, Dr. Hazard began feeding them a cup of broth made from canned tomatoes twice a day and put them through hours-long enemas in the bathtub, 
where they would faint during treatments. What about that is beautiful? This is torture. Like, this is actual torture. Actual torture. Two months later, Claire and Dora weighed about 70 pounds. Oh my gosh. But family members were used to their health fads, so they told no one what was going on. But Claire and Dora's childhood nurse, Margaret, felt something was off and flew to Washington to check on them. Oh my God, claps for Margaret right Right, now. Margaret. When she got there, she was told Claire had died. But it was all the fault of her body, not the fasting. Yeah, that makes sense. Lies, I say. Margaret also discovered that Dora weighed only about 50 pounds. And her bones were protruding so badly it hurt for her to sit. Oh my god. And Dora had also signed over her power of attorney to Samuel Hazard, Dr. Linda Hazard's husband. This woman is so beyond evil. Evil. Now, Claire and Dora weren't the first or only wealthy clients that this happened to, but Claire's death is what got Dr. Hazard into court. Good. Dr. Hazard thought the trial was a sham, and that if anyone dies during fasting, it's because something was wrong with you that was about to kill you anyway. Like, no girl, our bodies are just meant to eat food and digest it. Unreal. In 1911, Dr. Hazard was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to hard labor in Walla Walla, and her medical license was revoked. But for unknown reasons, she was later pardoned by the governor. She was a free woman two years later. That is the biggest BS that I've heard in the last year. That's a sham. That is a sham. In 1938, Dr. Hazard, then in her early 70s, fell ill and started a fast of her own. It didn't help. She died shortly thereafter. So it's interesting to me then because it's like, did she actually believe in this fasting? I don't know. That's what you would think. Because it's like, if she did, then what was the whole part of having everybody sign over their money to her? Well, I think she probably believed in some facet of it because people still believe in like intermittent fasting. Yeah, of stuff, course. Like healthy ways to do it. But I think she was doing it this way to them so they would die and she could get all their things. But maybe she believed in some kind of form of it. That's terrible. Wow. Also on our list at number six is Dr. John Bodkin Adams. When this story broke in 1957, it was huge news. TMZ would have been all over this. Back then, all the British newspapers were reporting on Dr. Bodkin Adams, the physician who targeted and killed elderly female patients in the English seaside town of Eastbourne. And the cherry on top, was how he got them to change their wills so he would inherit their fortunes. These kind of people are the evilest. I just like, work, just get a job. Just why are you the way you are? It makes me so mad. Now the town of Eastbourne where Dr. Bodkin Adams practiced was about two hours from London. In one doctorsreview.com article on the case, Eastbourne was described as, quote, a pleasant town on the south coast of England with a marginally better climate where the elderly traditionally retire. It's like they're Palm Beach, kind of. (laughs) Obviously. Obviously, wealthy older clients are big business for doctors. So Dr. Bodkin Adams set up shop there in 1922, and he became the go-to doc for wealthy elderly widows. He also helped the poor and unfortunate with medical care. So on paper, this guy was easily loved, which means it's also easy to miss his evil side. Seriously, because like at first you're like, well, this is a Hallmark movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Love it. And then. And then. It all falls apart. Uh Uh-oh. 
Dr. Bodkin Adams' MO would be to bill his patients but complain that he gets taxed too high. So if they just wanted to leave him a little something in their will, he'd also make sure to give some of that to charity. That's brazen. (laughs) And it worked. Oh, whoa. If someone said that to me, I'd be like, I can't say on the show what I would say to them. Red flag, red flag, red flag. I'd throw a red flag at them. He was able to collect from 350 wills. What? Now, according to doctorsreview.com, quote, he was left large amounts of property, jewels, silverware, and two Rolls Royces. No. I'm not kidding you. No. Ridiculous. And it's like, how did he time it all out so well? Yeah. It's a good question. That's that a great I question. Myself. I was going to say, great question you just asked. Thank you. Now answer it. <laughs> I'm telling you. He also helped push them towards death by injecting them with narcotics <gasps> that they probably didn't need. Oh my goodness. Once his name was on that will, in comes all the injections. But you can only get away with that kind of scam and murder lifestyle before rumors start to spread about you. Yeah, when someone's just like signing on the dotted line of their will and then you just like launch an injection at them, that's... Yeah, and you're just like driving around two Rolls Royces for no reason. People are going to start being like... Probably like, why is he like like dressed in rubies and pearls and everything? <laughs> like, what's why going does on he with have this a guy? ruby ring on? That's great. I'm confused. Now, these rumors got really loud after the death of one patient, Miss Morell, who died in 1950. Her death triggered a police investigation, which led to Dr. Bodkin Adams being charged in 1956. Good. Now, he gets even sneakier. He worked it out with Miss Morell so that her dying wishes were for him to get cash, silverware, and a Rolls Royce, but it wasn't officially in the will. What? It's like, why do you need another Rolls Royce, sir? Jeez Louise. As doctorsreview.com states, quote, his medical opinion was that Mrs. Morell was only expected to live a short time, weeks at the most. Therefore, her earlier death would not have been any advantage to Dr. Adams. Now, there were debates about why she was given injections, mainly of morphine or other narcotics, for being a stroke victim. Ah, it's like, that doesn't make any sense. No. But no records were kept of these injections, obviously. That's weird, too. Super weird. The reporting on the defense's argument was, quote, that if a drug is used to relieve suffering and as a result of that drug, the patient dies because there was no intent to kill, it would not be considered murder. The jury acquitted Dr. John Bodkin Adams and other murder charges were dropped. Stop. But he died in 1983 after falling and breaking his hip. Ha. You know, I actually didn't know that there was more than one Dr. Death. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Like we saw him so quickly on the countdown. (laughs) And I am pretty happy that we got to see uh, Dr. John Bodkin Adams there fall and break his hip. That was like one of those like, oh, my God. Oh, good. Yeah. Like sweet, sweet revenge. (laughs) Because as soon as you said that he was just nothing happened, they were like, sorry, that drug killed you. Whoops. My bad. Cry about it. And then they just let him out. Yeah. Fall and break your hip. Absolutely ridiculous. And we kind of got that, too, with Linda Hazard there. Yeah, that's her true. her fast killed her, basically. That's true. See, karma comes around. Mm-hmm. I hope Do it comes around things. for the next ones, too. Ooh, let's see who's next. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Stephanie Hakeman, 
host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of Diabolical Doctors. Starting off the second half of our list, Shiro Ishii. Biological warfare is terrifying to think about. During World War II, the United States and Great Britain tested biological weapons, but only on animals, which doesn't make it better really. But they knew it was a horrifying option to use, even on your worst enemies. Then we have Japanese medical officer Shiro Ishii who didn't give two thoughts about how awful releasing deadly pathogens onto humans would be. And he did. Why would you even have to give that a second thought? Yeah, you shouldn't really have to think about that shouldn't a couple even, times. Shouldn't even be a first thought. It just shouldn't be a thought. In 1920, 28-year-old Shiro Ishii became a doctor and married the president of the medical university's daughter. Oh, yeah. that's a good move. <laughs> good job. Yeah, I saw that. I see you. Yeah, right? At this point, he was very well known to obey his superiors, but be extremely nasty to colleagues. So he's a kiss butt. He's a kiss butt. After the 1925 Geneva Protocol was signed, which banned chemical and biological weapons in war, Ishii recommended that Japan still begin their own program to perform experiments. Which is like, no. That's what we just signed. <laughs> yeah, like, actually, <laughs> we, sorry, no. We just said that's bad, so no. Haven't even put the pen away. But he figured if these weapons have to be banned, they must be effective. So tell him no, and he'll want to do it more. We see how he is now. We get, yeah, we get we what's definitely going on do. here. Ishii had a dangerous mind, but was also brilliant. He developed a water purification device that apparently gave him fame and wealth which still were apparently not enough for him. Like, What more is there for just him? Just rest on those laurels. Just hang out. He also traveled through Europe and the U.S. to study the bacteriological weapons used in World War I. According to PBS, when he got back, quote, he was appointed professor of immunology at the Tokyo Army Medical School and given the rank of major. So, like, it sounds like he's doing well. It does. It does. Like, that little slip up of him being like, maybe we should still do these biological warfare. And you're like, no, don't do that. And he's like, okay, I'll okay. just go over here. Yeah. Stay on that path. He was also given the authority to run his own experimental camps by the Japanese government, where he used live humans to test biological pathogens. So we've taken a big dip. Well, and also, why would they give him that authority, yeah. knowing the question that he asked, like, right off the bat? Like, why is that an authority at all? That's where two thoughts <laughs> yeah. should have been given. It diverged in a wood, and they took the really bad road. Yeah. He sickened allied POWs and Chinese prisoners with some of the worst 
diseases, including bubonic plague, cholera, smallpox, anthrax, botulism, and many more. The bubonic plague? Just boom, here you go. God, anthrax? Like, what? Horrifying. Victims were often killed before the disease had run its course so that they could be autopsied as it progressed. He also gave the Japanese army diseases to contaminate battlefields and the environments of their enemies, no doubt killing thousands more outside the camp. He gave them diseases. Here, here's the disease. And they just, boop, onto a battlefield. Like, what? Knowing that's a thing is too much for my brain to comprehend. I know, because you wouldn't really think is. of that. Knowing he was guilty of war crimes, he faked his death in 1945, but the U.S. didn't fall for it. After asking Japan to hand him over, the U.S. eventually accepted Ishii's offer to grant him immunity in exchange for his research findings. Ishii died a free man in 1959. So they were like, you did all this terrible, terrible stuff, but you found out some great information, so go ahead, get out of here. Gosh darn it, you cracked those books and you did it well. Jeez, dumb. Four. Landing at number four this week is Dr. Joseph Michael Swango. By the time this story is over, you'll know that Dr. Swango pleaded guilty to four counts of murder. The actual number may be as high as 60, but the sheer number of red flags that were raised and the number of second chances this killer was given is unbelievable. Dr. Swango's father was an alcoholic war vet who apparently bragged aloud about all his kills while overseas. It's possible the murder-happy apple didn't fall far from the tree. As we have seen. Yes. After graduating high school as valedictorian, Dr. Swango headed off to medical school in the early 70s. His fellow medical student colleagues found him aggressive and overly competitive despite his brilliance. I feel like that happens a lot. Yeah, for sure. And then he had a couple of patients die, which other students mocked him for. Um, guys. <laughs> That's a weird joke to make later on. That's not really something you'd be like, ha LOL, they died under your watch. Like, That's Whoa. not funny. It's dark. I feel like the better ones also tried to get him expelled for falsifying patient reports, but he ultimately graduated. Wow, I mean, if he's falsifying patient reports, definitely mock him. Yeah, definitely do that. Do that. But also, he graduated when multiple patients died under his care. Yeah. How did you not get expelled for that? That should look into that. Uh, see, <laughs> I'm not going to go to the doctor anytime soon. Now, Dr. Swango was fascinated by violence. He kept clippings of killings and natural disasters, and he was fascinated by Nazis and the Holocaust. Okay. Like, something is wrong with you, sir. Okay. In 1983, he was accepted into an internship program at Ohio State University Medical Center, but he only lasted a year. Dr. Swango always seemed to be around when an unusual number of patients died. It's so weird. Such a weird coincidence. Crazy that how that happens. Bad luck just follows him. Whoops. Feel so bad. Now, in 1984, he claimed he discovered the dead body of one patient while performing his rounds. But an autopsy revealed that a ball of gauze had been placed down the patient's throat. Oh! The victim's family sued Dr. Swango, saying he was a murderer. I'm literally, like, I almost gagged when you said that. No, that's literally terrible. That's horrifying. 
like oh. you're doing your rounds and you're like, oh, this, oh, okay. Oh, I better just shove this ball of gauze down someone's throat. What? What? Now, according to CBS News, in 2000, Dr. Swango confessed to the 1984 murder of a 19-year-old patient by injecting her with a fatal dose of potassium. Guys, like how many red flags do we have here? It's a sea of red flags. Literally, it is the Red Sea. It's a red comforter. Yeah, that sounds comfy. (laughs) Now, Dr. Swango also poisoned his fellow residents by putting arsenic in their food and getting them all sick. Despite all this and his residency being terminated, he still got his medical license. What? If I could scream into this microphone without blowing out your eardrums, I would. Also, I take it back. Mock him. Mock him mercilessly. Definitely. (laughs) Shove him in a locker. He served a few years of prison time for getting caught for poisoning co-workers at his job. What? But he just changed his name and went back into medicine after his release. Stop it. He's like, my name's actually Joe now, so. In 1993, Dr. Swango was accepted into a one-year psychiatric residency program at the State University of New York at Stony Brook on Long Island. As part of his residency, Swango began seeing patients at a Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Northport, New York. While there, he murdered at least three victims by lethal injection. Ooh, I hate how easy that is. Seriously. Like, that's really scary. That's the thing. Now, before a full-scale investigation could happen, he fled to Zimbabwe, where he was able to forge documents and practice medicine, killing more patients. So he's, like, doing a world tour. A world tour of A death. world murder tour. Police did arrest him at Chicago's O'Hare Airport on his way to fly to Saudi Arabia for another job as a doctor. He was arrested and was only spared the death penalty because of a prosecution deal struck, serving several life terms in prison instead. My goodness. That's just like a slap on the wrist for everything that he did. Jeez. Ridiculous. Number three on our countdown of diabolical doctors is Dr. Christopher Dunch. If you look at Dr. Dunch's background, schooling, and training, on the surface, it looks very impressive. But after 33 out of 37 patients that he operated on ended up with severe complications or even died, you start to look a little closer and realize this man was not what he seemed to be. He started off strong. He got his undergraduate degree in 1995 and headed off to the University of Tennessee at Memphis College of Medicine to get both an MD and a PhD. While there, he worked in a research lab studying the origins of brain cancer and the various uses of stem cells. So he's not just, he's not messing around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm saying, like, so far... So far. Even just an MD and a PhD, that's a hard route to take. Yeah. That's a lot. But I didn't know anything <laughs> about this before. I'm like, uh-huh. I'm just saying, if you don't know this story, then already we're like, whoa. Dunch got his dual degrees, which, again, very impressive, and it almost seemed like he'd get into biotech rather than treating patients. Probably should have. Probably should have. That's because he worked with a couple Russian scientists to explore the commercial potential of stem cells to revitalize ailing backs. This was a huge deal. They patented the technology and in 2008 launched a whole company to make this a reality. Dunch so far is no joke. He's laid the groundwork for a solid medical career. Or did he? Jump to 2011. Dunch is now in Dallas, working as a neurosurgeon. Again, whoa. 
Yeah, right? In the two years he performs surgeries in the city, all hell breaks loose. The majority of his patients go in with ailments and issues a neurosurgeon of his alleged caliber should easily be able to handle. Most of them come out with worse complications, and in two cases, patients died in the hospital. In Texas, it's difficult to sue for malpractice because of caps on payouts. But when Dunch is finally reported to the state board, we start to get a clearer picture of how he's been getting away with this for a long time. Aside from the malpractice limitations, most facilities never fired him. They just let him resign so they didn't have to deal with him anymore. So you're just, just kicking that can down the road. Yeah, like, don't Just go don't somewhere else and kill yeah. more people. Don't throw it away. Just kick it down the road. Someone else will get it. July 2015, Dunch was finally arrested and charged with one count of injury to an elderly person and five counts of assault. In 2017, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison, becoming the first doctor in the U.S. to get this punishment for his practice of medicine. The big reveal here. During the investigation, it came to light that Dr. Dunch was an alcohol and cocaine abuser. So during operations, he most likely had it in his system from at least the night before. Can you imagine? Your surgeon, your, oh, excuse me, strike that. Neurosurgeon. Neurosurgeon is operating on your brainium while hopped up on cocaine. Imagine. No, cannot. Well, remember the biotech company? They removed him for this exact reason. And when his training was questioned, turns out you're supposed to complete 1,000 surgeries before finishing a residency and a fellowship in this field. Dunch barely did 100. What did I tell you? How did any of this happen? It's just like, it says so much about the system. It's truly a kicking the can down the road situation. Don't throw it away. Just kick it to the next person. They'll take care of it, right? And it's so sad because this all could have been avoided. Wild. If Dr. Death is at number (laughs) uh, three, like, what is happening? And when I saw that he was number three, I was like, what? And then I saw my number one and I was like, oh, Oh, okay. (laughs) So just wait. I'm like very nervous for your number one. I'm nervous for number two. Honestly, you should be. Two. We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of Diabolical Doctors. At number two is Harold Shipman. You may have heard his name before because Harold Shipman is Britain's worst serial killer, who according to the investigations, killed at least 250 of his patients over a 23-year period. He was not convicted of nearly that many, but like we've seen on this countdown, the body count of his patients raises a lot of suspicions. One might say. One might go as far as saying that. In March of 1975, Harold Shipman killed his first victim at a medical practice in the town of Todd Morden in West Yorkshire. A year later, in February of 1976, he was convicted of forging prescriptions to get a hold of a morphine-like drug, which he used to kill his patients. Oh. When he got caught, he lied by saying it was for his addiction to the drug. He's like, no, 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 that's mine. Yeah, it's totally mine. Which is hilarious, because usually you're like, no, 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 that's my friend. (laughs) Later that same year, he forged the name of a patient to get enough morphine to kill 360 people. 
Like, how big does this red flag need to be? I was going to say, how much morphine is that? We had a red comforter. We now have like a red globe. Yeah, we truly do. Like, who was like, yeah, here you go. We have a red Milky Way right now. Seriously. Needless to say, he didn't work at that practice anymore. But after receiving psychiatric and drug treatment, he was able to keep working in the medical field. Because, you know, like, why not? Why not? At this point, whatever. Oh, let's get it. You know, everybody does. It's fine. And obviously, he continued to kill in high numbers using the same lethal injections method. In 1998, suspicions were finally raised about the number of Shipman's patients who were dying. According to The Guardian, quote, the neighboring medical practice discovered that the death rate of Shipman's patients was nearly 10 times higher than their own. Oh my God. 10 times higher. How was it even allowed to get to that point, though? That's what I'm saying about, like, all of these yeah. things, though. The Greater Manchester Police got involved and they did a spectacular job. I'm actually kidding. <laughs> they failed to carry out. I was like, oh, good. <laughs> yeah, no, they failed to carry out even the most basic checks, including whether he had a criminal background or not. Guys, that's like the first thing you should do. It's literally like step one. Literally the first thing you do is find out if someone's a criminal. Also, I feel like you learn that on day one. I feel like you do. I don't know. The Guardian reports that as a result of the police's shoddy work, Shipman was, quote, free to kill three more of his patients before finally being arrested in February 1999. Harold Shipman went on trial in October of 1999, charged with the murders of 15 patients. He was found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment on all 15 counts of murder and one count of forgery. He took his own life in prison in 2004, but inquiries into his crime even after his death are what have put the number of victims as high as 250. No. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 diabolical doctors, Joseph Mingala, the angel of death. Oh no. Yes. It seems like a given that a Nazi would be titled the most diabolical, but there are so many more sickening reasons why Joseph Mingala lands at number one. One of the most spine-chilling reasons is because literally with a point of a finger, this man decided whether someone lived or died, an action that earned him the nickname, the Angel of Death. Like others on the countdown, Joseph Mingala was very ambitious. It seems you need to have a special kind of drive to get into medicine. I think we can all agree. So in the 1930s, Mingala decided to study medicine and human genetics and physical anthropology but he soon also decided to join the Nazi party in 1938. Mengele joined the SS, which is a military wing of the Nazi party. In May 1943, after serving as a decorated medical officer in the SS, Mengele was chief doctor of the Auschwitz death camps in Poland. Oh my God. Yes, this is where the human experiments come in. Mengele and other doctors stationed at the camp oversaw normal medical duties. This included taking care of SS staff and preventing the spread of disease. But Mingala also had a larger role in the context of the biomedical Nazi vision, which was, as the New York Times reported, quote, combating and destroying enemies of the Aryan race with positive steps to preserve and improve the German racial community. 
And he did this by conducting human experiments. The two words human experiments together, like, yeah, it should never be in a sentence. Because even think of testing and experimenting on animals is horrible and horrific. Right. But humans, you're like, whoa. Seriously. Auschwitz was the ideal laboratory since they were bringing in large numbers of prisoners every day. He used humans to experiment on to study diseases. He did a lot of sinister experiments to study hereditary features like eye color. And this is really rough. According to the Jewish Virtual Library, quote, he changed the eye color by injecting chemicals into the eyes of living subjects. And he killed people with heterochromatic two different color eyes so that the eyes could be removed and sent to Berlin for study. How do you even think something like that in your brain? Like, oh, that's what I'm going to do today when I clock in. Injecting chemicals into living patients' eyes to change the color. How do you do that? That's a human being. And then just killing people with heterochromatic eyes. Yeah, like why? Like you have two different color eyes. That's beautiful and amazing. I'm going to murder you and take your eyes. What? Mingala was particularly, and a lot of people might know this about him, he was particularly obsessed with twins. In 1944, twins were put into special barracks to be studied. Being a twin meant your chances of survival went up, but the real reason was to understand how they could reproduce the German race at higher rates by producing twins. What? Insanity. I, I, what? Yes. So we called him the angel of death. This is how he became the angel of death. One of the most terrifying elements of Mengele's job was that he supervised the incoming prisoners at Auschwitz and determined their fate. He wore white gloves, pointed and shouted either right or left, which determined whether you were assigned to hard labor or the gas chamber. This is the role that earned him the nickname, the Angel of Death. I mean, his medical stuff is really terrifying and horrific. Absolutely. And unspeakable. You add this into but it. This particular thing, just him standing there with white gloves, shouting right or left, and you either going into hard labor where you will be worked to death or you are just going to be gassed immediately. And he just chooses based on like what he feels like. Just whatever he feels. Just... You walk up and he just decides for you. Not even like he examines you. I mean, it's something about the white gloves. I don't know what, like, that just freaks me out. It's the whole idea of this is so, I can't, I, my brain won't even wrap around it. It's so horrifying that this ever even it's happened. Unreal. Unreal. But everyone needs to keep reading about it because it happened. Because it happened. Now, there is a thing with Joseph Mengele that his legacy might have been a little exaggerated. It's undeniable that Joseph Mengele is an absolute monster and murderer. Undeniable. But according to the New York Times, some biographers and scholars, including David G. Marwell, say we should be a little hesitant to give him such a giant murderous platform. Should we? Marwell wrote in his book about Mengele, quote, What is known about Mengele's time at Auschwitz is more trope than truth. Mengele's outsized reputation as a medical monster is in inverse proportion to what is known and understood about what he actually did. And the Times also reports, quote, indeed, some prisoners claimed that they had never even heard his name. So I don't know how I feel about this because it's like, he's a monster. Yeah. Like we know that. Right. That is documented. I don't even think that I would be like, you know, 
we should we shouldn't downplay this you know yeah i don't even think we're ex- anything's being exaggerated right it's a horrible horrible monster yeah like i don't think that we need to be hesitant when it comes to this i, I think, think we should so. just paint him like the murderer that he was like i know in other circumstances a lot of times through history a game of telephone is played where a story does get exaggerated through time and through retellings mm-hmm. and sometimes it's like whoa that didn't happen i thought it did this, I mean, he experimented on humans. Yeah, he was literally injecting chemicals like, into live people's eyeballs. Yeah, like, that's a thing. And he literally stood in front of people, innocent people, just people, and said left or right, and that was and to decide and whether they them. were going to be gassed or not. Yeah. He's a monster. Just sentenced up. them to death either way. Yeah, I don't think we need to even, like, downplay any of it. He's a, he's a monster. But in the end, Joseph Mingala escaped paying for his crimes. Which makes me incredibly angry. Which is a travesty. He died of a stroke while swimming in 1979 after spending his whole life in hiding. Good. Good. You know what? Joseph Mengele is numero uno. Absolutely. That is for sure. If he was anywhere else on this countdown, I'd be like, guys, what's up? Guys, what is happening? But then Ishii is, that was a scary one too, the biological warfare. Yeah, he was right there. That was a lot. But there was a lot on this list that I think they all belonged where they were. I think it was probably just like, we have to put this somewhere and this person's terrifying. They're all terrible. But Joseph Mengele, I think as far as diabolical doctors go, you don't get any worse. No, there's no way. There's nowhere to go. I can't think of anybody that I know that was left off, but I again, I'm not like well-versed in diabolical doctors. Yeah, I mean, unless we're going to talk about like Dirty John, but like he wasn't even really a doctor. So. Yeah, he was just wearing scrubs. <laughs> he was just wearing scrubs. Yeah, I also don't want to be well-versed in diabolical doctors, so I'm happy that I have nothing to contribute. But I got to say, a few of these I didn't know about, and that's... Same here. This was a cool, like crazy, scary traumatizing thing to read about so it really was thank you podcast research god go make your doctor's appointments guys <laughs> well thanks for listening we'll be back next week with another great episode remember to follow crime countdown on spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week you can find all episodes of crime countdown and all other podcast shows for free on spotify and if you like this show follow at podcast on facebook and instagram and at podcast network on twitter And if you like us, which I hope you do, hello, you're here still, you can follow our other podcast, Morbid. You can follow us on Instagram at Morbid Podcast or on Twitter at A Morbid Podcast. And we hope you keep it weird until Monday, but definitely not this weird. Keep it healthy. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Kevin McAlpine. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein. Research by Jay Cahio. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, and Jonathan Ratliff. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Ash Kelly and Elena Urquhart. 